Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Peak Human Project. Today is another episode in which I have a guest, and today my guest is Daniel Bove. Daniel happens to be a really good friend of mine that I met in grad school, and he is now the director of performance for the Phoenix Suns NBA franchise. Uh, We talk a lot about his own personal philosophies around training, what he does on a day-to-day basis as the director of performance for the Phoenix Suns, and we get into a little bit of philosophy Uh, training and otherwise in this podcast. And I think you guys are really going to like his take on um, not just training, but life in general. So without further ado, please welcome my guest, Daniel Bove. Same time workout. I'm eating the same thing every day, which is pretty healthy. And uh, like, I probably haven't been this consistent with training since regionals. Wow. That was a long time ago. It feels crazy. What year was regionals for you? Uh, 2014. 2014. So it's been like, so you feel like six years later because of what's going on with everything outside. That's when you finally got it back into a group. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Good though. What's what, I mean, what's your training been like this last couple months, I guess, month and a yeah, half? I've been doing like, to be honest with you, like true CrossFit almost. Like I just... I'll wake up every day. I'll try to do something different than I did the day before. And, um, that's, that's pretty much it. <laughs> like that's all I'm doing is just every day. It's like, Oh, today I'm going to, I'm going to go on a 60 minute run. And then tomorrow I'm going to, and then it's like, I come in today and I'm like, I'm just going to work on hanging for a, for an hour. Mm. I'm just going to like that's hang cool. with like different positions. And then the next day it's like, Oh, I'm going to squat today. And it's like just trying to change it up. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's pretty cool. I think for me, it's been a little bit of the same, but just, I think I I have a tendency like during this time to not be a hundred percent consistent every week with what I do like that. I've been trying not to do the same movements every week, even though that's like what they, you know, conventional wisdom would say you should, and then try to progress progressively overload or whatever. But I've been having fun just trying to come up with stuff I can do randomly around the house, you know? with whatever I have and workouts are are legit. (laughs) I tried to, um, I, I didn't have the pieces of wood yesterday to do RDLs. Um, those banded RDLs. I don't know if you saw those, but so I tried using these, like my landlord had some old, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, like countertops. What, what is that? Uh, granite. Mm. They had like some old granite slabs, like just like little four inches across or whatever. So I tried to use those and I ended up like splitting the granite in half because the band tension was too much, I guess. So that didn't work. <laughs> but, uh, the Geiger. I've been using that. Um, I've been using the hell out of that, uh, Versa climber. That's for sure. There, there you go. Good. That's there been, go. that was a good, that was a good, I didn't use it for months ever since I got it, I didn't use it for months. And then now all of a sudden it's like a key element of my, of my staple. work. It's a staple. It's a staple. It's a hell of a, of a machine. That's for sure. It doesn't is look the, hard. Is it, does it have batteries in it or is it plugged in or what? It's plugged in. It's plugged in. So I just plug it in and it, it is it like, it doesn't look like much, right? When you do, I don't know if you've used it before. Yeah. It doesn't look like much, but then it's kind of like the air, the air bike where it's like, you just think it's easy from the looks of it. And then you do it and you're like, this is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> oh, dude, I know how that is. We, we, we still have one. Um, we still have one at the gym. I, I just don't really ever use it. 
Yeah. It's kind of like if I had something else, if I had like an assault bike or a rower like, like you have, I'd definitely use that instead, but it takes up a lot of space. Yeah, I know it does. Well, that's cool, man. So, um, let's see. I mean, there's a lot to talk that we could talk about, obviously. Um, you know, uh, you are for, well, let's just have introduce you. Um, you're Daniel Bove. Uh, you work for, you're the director of performance for the Phoenix Suns. Yes, that that's, correct? that's currently my uh, job. I am the director of performance for the Suns. I oversee trend conditioning and sports science for the team. Okay. Awesome. And so um, I think a lot of people might, you know, hear sports science or director performance and, and they, they maybe have not quite an idea of what that all entails, but like on a day-to-day basis, um, you know, generally what, what's, what, what do you do day to day? Are you, were you working with the players one-on-one? Are you more taking analytics and data and reporting back to your bosses? Like, how does that work? So I actually, I work with a great performance staff. We have a head strength coach, uh, Corey Schlesinger. We have assistant strength coach, Jeff Dolan, and then our sports scientist, Kohei Tamagawa, um, we all work as one unit. Now on a day to day, they're doing most of the coaching, most of the monitoring. Um, I'm more on the back end, kind of overseeing kind of what the day to day looks like, helping out with, you know, just the general program in itself, doing a lot of back end work with the data, setting up our data stream, the structure of the data sets, things like that. Um, how we're reporting and communicating the information to the front office, how we're communicating it to the rest of the, um, the health and training staff. And then um, just kind of, you know, talking to everyone who's involved with basketball operations and how we can improve performance. That's, that's kind of my role right now. Okay. So it's not so much, you know, one-on-one training with the athletes or anything. It's more so, that big picture stuff like you're talking about. So you have like your strength and conditioning coaches that are working with the players as far as working them out and things like that. And I'm sure you do some of that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, um, currently the way that the, the job is kind of set up is it's more of a hands-off approach, sit back. And I let Corey and, and Jeff do what they do best, which is, be awesome strength conditioning coaches. So yeah. that's one of the reasons I brought them in. So I, I rely heavily on them to do the in the trenches coaching and training of the players. You know, I, my role has kind of progressed in this way where, you know, last year I, I was the director of performance, did a lot more coaching than I currently do. Um, but when I had the chance to hire these guys and expand the staff, I was able to take a step back and you know, do a little bit more of the big picture stuff, which, you know, I'm always going to miss coaching. I, I definitely, uh, I will coach again, but with our current setup, this is kind of just how, how we're, how we're operating, which it's been extremely efficient uh, up to this point. That's awesome. So I, you know, um, 
you know, when it comes to working with, with, with athletes and stuff, I think that, you know, me personally, um, I think I have like a preconceived idea of, of what that means or like, what is the difference between working with a pro athlete versus the kind of people that I tend to work with, which is general population, maybe people who are trying to be, you know, hobby athletes, right? Like powerlifting and, and, and things like that. But, um, you know, what, what, what do you see as a big difference? Cause you've worked with both. You I mean, you worked in CrossFit, you, you were a strength and conditioning coach leading into this. Um, you know, so you've worked with both sides now working with athletes. What, um, what, what are some like big differences, if any, that you've seen in working with this kind of population? Well, I mean, I think first and foremost, it's very complex. Like what makes, you know, what makes a pro elite level athlete different from gym pop. And there's so many different ways you can take it, but you know, it's obviously a little bit of nature, a little bit of nurture, but when you really break it down and you're starting to look at the elite athlete, like the best in the world at, at these, these things, you're, you're basically, it all comes down to who their parents were and, and what their genetic mm-hmm. profile is. And, you know, as coaches, you know, we help them find a way to express these genes over time and their environment obviously has a, has a play in that, you know, how they were brought up has a play in that. But, um, at the end of the day, these, these guys are just genetic freaks. They're just genetic freaks. They are. Um, and I really didn't understand how much of a freak they were until I got to this level sport. Um, you know, as far as like from a psychological standpoint, what I think makes these guys extremely special is I think, especially in a sport like basketball, where it's, it's very output based, you have to be explosive, you have to have endurance, but it's also a very high skill. So it's not like, you know, you have to be able to go up and down in terms of like arousal level. And I think the guys who are really special at this level, they're able to turn it completely off and then turn it completely on when they're not playing their sport, they're super relaxed. They're laid back. At least some of the really uh, special ones are. And then when they're playing, they're able to really raise that and, and become hyper-focused. And, um, but while being hyper-focused, they're able to keep their anxiety extremely low. They're able to find flow state and be relaxed, even in these like very tense situations. So it's just, they're, you know, they're Ferraris, man. They're Ferraris. And, you know, there's, there's a reason why they were selected to play at the level they are. I think probably one example I can think of where I've heard that before is um, in jujitsu with Marcelo Garcia, where he sort of had this way of just like basically taking a nap around, you know, around the mats at world championships. And like, basically you would never be able to tell that he is about to enter a championship fight or a championship match against another killer basically. And then, uh, you know, being able to go from that basically just like a zero or a one on the arousal arousal scale to just like 10 out of 10 when he needed it. And also being able to do that without having to depend on any specific, environmental triggers or anything like that because you know especially in sport i'm assuming um that you know the 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 environment's going to be different 
all the time. Like you're going to be at a different stadium or a different arena and you're going to have you know, different things going on as far as, you know, maybe with basketball, you've got five fouls, you've got, you, you haven't hit a shot maybe in a little while, like, I don't know, all kinds of different ways that the environment's different, but to be able to turn that on despite any of those, those obstacles would be crazy. I wish I knew how to do that in my, for myself, you know? Well, that's so funny that you bring up Marcelo Garcia. He, he's been a hero of mine ever since I started grappling. He, uh, yeah. he was unreal to watch in his prime. But similar story is when I was at, when I was at Penn state undergrad, um, watching Ed Ruth wrestle for Penn state was, he was a close friend of mine. Um, was actually roommates with my best friend. Mm. He, I remember it was the Nittany Lion Open, which is like a mid-season tournament, open tournament, where um, nationally ranked wrestlers from out the con- throughout the country will come and wrestle at Penn State. And Ed, I think this was when he was a sophomore, um, sophomore or freshman, but he's in the semifinals and he's going up against some really high caliber wrestlers at, at that point in the tournament. And I remember the announcer at the arena just kept calling Ed Ruth, please report to Matt five or whatever it was. And mm. they, the announcer kept report, kept repeating, Ed Ruth, please come to Matt five. And the match is supposed to have started. And here comes Ed sprinting out from under the bleachers. He was asleep. He was literally sleeping in the middle of a tournament under the bleachers at the arena, sprints out within a minute, pins his opponent. Wow. Doesn't even warm up, just goes to the mat, puts his headgear on, pins his guy, runs off the mat, and goes back under the bleachers and starts sleeping again. Jesus. It was one of the craziest things I've ever seen. But Ed was the prime example of, he was this guy who, and still is, he fights in Bellator now, uh, MMA, but he has this uncanny ability to turn it off and on and be relaxed when he's, when he's actually grappling. Um, but he's one of the most explosive athletes I've ever seen on the mat. Um, almost like a Jordan Burroughs clone, but then his, his relaxation is what makes him special. So, yeah, I feel like, well, I don't know what your opinion is on it, but it's almost like if if you're not really used to doing that or you don't really have that in your nature, I feel like it's really hard to learn how to do that. Would you, would you agree? Yeah. And that's, that's part of where I think the, the nurture comes into it. And, and, you know, um, I don't, you know, there are certain things that are passed down genetically. It's obviously genetic and, how you were raised are going to influence your, your demeanor and, and your, um, your personality. But yeah, I, I think it takes, there's something special about someone who has that ability. I, I don't yeah. think that's common. Having worked with the athletes I've worked with, I don't see a ton of people who have that quality and the ones that do, they stand out and they're, they're really, really good at what they do. Because I think of like a guy like Donald Cowboy Cerrone in, in the UFC, where he like he really makes it on the outside. He he makes it seem like he's relaxed, like in press conferences leading up to to his fights and even before fights. He makes it seem like he's relaxed. But I've heard a lot of stories and actually heard from him speaking on it um, himself that on the inside, he really doesn't feel that way. 
And so although he's sort of trying his hardest to be that relaxed person, it's like it, it it's like he can't no matter I mean he's he's fought more than anyone pretty much in the UFC he, fought, he fights four or five times a year but still he can't really seem to reach that and it must be just something that he doesn't have genetically like you're saying and some people just do well it's it's funny too because it's like it's just how you're perceiving the stress and situation and not letting it over overtake mm-hmm. your entire being right like I think I remember George St. Pierre talking about how you know being a little bit scared and a little bit anxious is really good. It keeps you sharp. Mm. If you're not, if you're not anxious a little bit, or maybe even a little bit fearful of what's going to happen, or you're nervous, if you're not nervous, then you're not going to be as sharp as you probably should be, but you can't let it get to a point where you start to uh, let it affect your performance. Mm. So it's, it's that fine line between like a letting a little bit in, but not letting it overtake you. Do you find that, so I know that part of your job is keeping keeping track of like wellness and all that stuff for the players. Do you find that there is anything that can affect th- those guys that are able to do that really well and, and turn it on and turn it off? Do you think, do you, have you found any correlation between things that are going on in their life or, or training load or anything that can affect their ability to do that? I think the biggest, this is kind of, this is kind of silly, but you, when you work with these guys, they know themselves so well. They might not be able to explain it all the time, but they tend to know what they want and need um, before competition. So you have three or four guys that, you know, they know that they need to actually bump their arousal level up to get prepped for a game. So these kind of guys, they'll, they're your caffeine people, right? They're going to want their Red Bulls. They're going to want their, their no-dos. Their, um, there's different caffeine supplements out there, but, you know, players who need that bump, they know they need that bump and they're going to seek it out. And then you have the other guys that, they, you know, they're going to probably try to meditate before a game or they're going to relax more. They're going to play video games or they're just going to do something that takes their mind off of it. So I think when you get to this level and you have the experience that these guys have, when it comes to competition and getting them prepped mentally for competition as a practitioner, I think we kind of step back and we let them kind of run the show from that perspective. And then we're there to support if they mm. need something or they want advice on, on how to, to prep a specific way, then we will offer it. But, you know, when it comes to competing, that's where we get out of the way and we just, we let them, you know, dictate what is going to get them right for competition. It's interesting. I know that, uh, I mean, I work with people virtually, right? So I'm not currently, I don't work with people in person um, like you do, but uh, one thing that I've noticed, I guess, so it's interesting you bring that, that sort of, um, that that's your approach with a lot of guys, letting them figure out what's best for themselves and kind of, um, I, I guess letting them self customize or fine tune what they need. And I see a lot of the same thing when I'm coaching people and, and, and the way that they work out and stuff is, um, a lot of times they'll want me to like basically detail every little thing that they should be doing in the gym, exactly how they should be contracting their muscle this way and blah, blah, blah. And I've had to kind of walk them back and say like, you know what, I'm not, I can't really tell you exactly what's going to work for you in the sense that you're going to have to like, I'm I'm going to be able to write you something that is 90% customized. And that last 10% is your job. 
You know what I mean? Um, because ultimately, you know, if I tell somebody, hey, you know what, before you go and uh, hit your one rep max attempt, I need you to like slap yourself in the face and do something crazy like that. Well, some people aren't going to respond well to that. Some people need the opposite. And, and, and so it's interesting because um, I, I feel like early on, you feel like you want to, that if you don't tell somebody exactly what they need to do, they're going to think that you don't know what you're doing maybe, or, or they're going to look at you like you're not a, um, a wealth of information or something like that. But I feel that giving them that freedom is actually better than yeah, the alternative. 100%. 100%. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, so working in the NBA, uh, what are some, I mean, you've been working in the NBA now for how many years going on? So this is finishing up my fourth year, fourth year. And so I know that like you growing up, like you were a big basketball fan, right? Oh yeah. I mean, big time. I'm from, I'm from Philadelphia and as Andres, you know, cause we went to grad <laughs> school together and we became uh-huh. really close. I was the biggest Philadelphia 76ers fan growing up. Um, And like, I mean, that was my sport, like my favorite sport, favorite thing to do was, I remember my grandma was a huge NBA fan and um, her favorite player was Allen Iverson. But I remember Mm -hmm. we didn't have cable growing up. So we would, my dad and I would drive 15 minutes to my grandma's house um, pretty much every, every game. And we would just watch the game with her. But so, or very early on, I was, I was pretty much hooked on NBA basketball. And so like, obviously when you're a kid, you grow up and you're dreaming about being in the NBA, playing in the NBA and you're in the NBA, you're not playing, but got, you got about as close as you could, I guess. Um, And what, what's been surprising for you about being in the NBA or working in the NBA that even maybe going into the job four years ago that you wouldn't have expected that you can share with us? I would say on a personal level, I, I didn't really understand or fathom how, how much travel can actually affect you on like a physical and a psychological level. I, you know, from a fan's perspective, you know, these guys are traveling all the time, but you don't, unless you experience it, you don't really understand like how difficult it can be um, and how sporadic it is and how hard it is on, you know, your family life and how hard it is to, to try to find that balance. So that that's been a huge, huge um, part in, you know, my growth as a person trying to find balance with, with work and home and traveling to different time zones all the time. And, you know, making sure that I'm keeping the, you know, the most consistent sleep schedule that I can for myself. So that was something that I didn't really, I wasn't prepped for when I, when I came in, but um, it's definitely made me stronger and, and better as a person. Um, I think from, from the athlete standpoint, I think realizing how much, how much time these guys are spending outside of basketball related to their job. So it's like, these guys aren't just playing basketball. They're doing, you know, they come in the morning, they have their, their individualized workout with their, their skill coach. They have team practice, they have team lifts, they have their, uh, their treatment if they need it. They have uh, team sponsored events they have to attend. They have, you know, their community uh, work that they do, uh, fan interaction stuff. It's, it's a long, 
day for these guys. And there's a million people that are fighting for their time. So it's one of the reasons why as a performance professional, we're trying to, we're trying our best to, you know, trim the fat in regards to like what these guys need from a training perspective, making sure that, you know, you're not getting an hour and a half with these guys every day. You, you know, you might get 45 minutes with them. So finding the most efficient use of your time with these guys was it, it, first of all, it's made us better as practitioners because we're getting rid of the stuff we don't need, but it's, it's something that I don't think I realized before I got into the NBA, how full these guys days are. Mm. So you're saying that when it comes to juggling everything else that they have in life, all the stressors, getting enough sleep, all of the, you know, having to do press and, and, and team functions and stuff that like sometimes the workout itself, maybe especially during the season has to be, you know, kept to a minimum effective dosage, right? Not necessarily like wasting time in the gym or giving them more to do. It's like maybe finding what's, what can we take away and still, and still make this effective for them. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, anyone who's listening, who, who's familiar with, training at all like you know it's going to change depending on the time of year right so it's like off season the way that looks is going to be different than what in season looks like or even the ramp up during training camp is going to look different than what in season looks like in regards to the stress that we're placing on the athlete so um yeah i mean it's it's minimal effective dose these guys aren't they're not weightlifters they're not you know they're not you don't need to get them in the gym for an hour and a half to two hours a day. We're getting them what they need to perform at their best on the court. And they're having, you know, an NBA schedule is just over three games on average per week. So the last thing you want to do is put them in a hole during the season, but you definitely want to keep them maintaining their levels of strength, um, help them, be a little bit more resilient to injury and then when you get into the off season that's when you can really push these guys and start to overreach them and hopefully push some adaptations that you can't really get when you're in the middle of you know fighting for a, a playoff spot yeah do you feel that um I guess going back to when you were just uh, a CrossFit coach or even maybe before working in the NBA maybe you were helping some people out with their training programs and things like that. Um, like how do, how, how do you think that could be applied to, to those who might be listening who aren't professional athletes or training professional athletes with just general population people? Do you feel that all of that same stuff comes into to play as far as, you know, adjusting your training based on what's going on in your life or how much stress you have or sleep and all of that kind of stuff? Yeah, I think, I think it depends on, I mean, to get an adaptation, you're going to have to overreach to some mm -hmm. extent, you know, there's different ways to do that. You, know, you can overreach with low volume, high frequency training. You can go through blocks, you know, block periodization with your accumulation phases, your tapering, your, there's so many different ways that you can go about reaching an athletic goal. Um, but, and I don't know if this is along the lines of your question, but I do think there's a difference between how you train for high level sport and then how you train for uh, fitness, health, and longevity. Like they're just two different ends of the, sp the spectrum. And I, 
I, I think I've heard it, James Fitzgerald of OPEX talk about this several times where if you, if you put them on a continuum and you look at the blood profiles of a high end athlete, you know, especially the grueling sports, like the CrossFits, the ultra marathoning, these really grueling ones. And then you look at people who are training for health, wellness, and fitness. Like if I look at, under the hood at someone who's a high level CrossFitter, their blood profile is probably closer to that of uh, disease and sickness than it is health and longevity. Right. So it's, you know, high level sport is asymmetrical in nature. It's going to be unbalanced. That's just how it is. Like anything done to an extreme is inherently not going to be healthy. Right. So, but that's, that's just the name of the game. You know, you gotta, if you want to find health and longevity, it's gotta be a little bit more balanced. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's just kind of how I view the continuum of people who want to be healthy and fit versus people who want to compete at a high level. Got it. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good point. And I think that, um, well, you have a lot of, of, I mean, you have personal experience because you, you were a CrossFit Games competitor um, on the team side, correct? And yeah, so we, um, I was a part of CrossFit Center City in Philadelphia. Uh, we went to the Mid-Atlantic Regionals as a team that year. Um, that was, it was an awesome experience. Definitely one of the hardest things that I've been through from like an athletic standpoint. Um, learned a lot about myself, learned a lot about training, learned a lot about <laughs> recovery and all, all of the above. But yeah, that was, so that was 2014. Yeah. So that was like not too long before we met actually, because I, well, we, I met you in 2015 when I went to grad school. Right. So, and I think, dude, we talked about that back then and and how almost like after those CrossFit games, like you were, I mean, it was hard for you to kind of recover physically for a little bit there. Right. From, from that whole ordeal. Yeah. I mean, I feel like for me, you know, I, I don't know how, so I haven't really followed how the, the comp, competitive CrossFit is set up now, but I remember back then it was kind of like, you know, you had your five open workouts and then you had a couple months go by and then you had regionals if you qualified for regionals and then the games would be a month or two later than that. I remember, you know, I was still learning about like peaking as an athlete and, you know, timing that peak up properly. And I peaked a little early. I peaked during the open, mm. you know, mainly because I, I needed to, because like our team wasn't, you know, we had to try to qualify for regionals. So we wanted to peak during the open so we could qualify for regionals, knowing that we probably weren't going to get out of regionals and go to the games. Mm -hmm. uh, out of 30 teams, I think we were probably close to top 10. Um, but you had to be top three to actually make it. So I peaked in the open, which was months before regionals. So by the time I got to regionals, I was just completely spent. I was spent. And, yeah. uh, you know, you're lean, you're extremely lean, lean for a long time. Everyone responds differently to that. And you know that more than anyone yeah. having worked with, um, with, you know, bodybuilders and fitness competitors and, um, I don't respond really well to being lean for an extreme amount of time. And, you know, it affected my sleep. It affected my mood. It affected just my interactions with people for, for a good year, probably at least a year or two following the, the regionals. Um, 
but you know, I learned a lot about myself and, and how I recover and, and what type of training works well for me. And, um, you know, it's, it was, it was an awesome experience. And, uh, I mean, I'm happy that, that I got to, I got to experience it. And those guys, I mean, in, in, in your case, like you were lean, but also performing at a really high level, not to say that bodybuilders and physique competitors don't perform at a high level, but it's a different kind of energy system that they're using. Cause it, and it's not like they're doing Metcons, right? They're, they're lifting weights. They're maybe doing some steady state cardio or some high intensity interval training or something like that to try to get leaner. But there's a difference between that and the kind of workouts that you have to do to try to be a CrossFit competitor, right? It's, you're like burning the candle at both ends, so to speak, because you're already lean and you're subjecting yourself to really metabolically taxing and demanding workouts that are hard to recover from, even if you oh, yeah. are at a higher body fat. For sure. And, and I, I, looking back, I definitely did not have the aerobic system that I needed to be able to recover from workout to workout. I was much more of, and still am more of an explosive, uh, type two, like, um, you know, go out, be real anaerobic for a real short amount of time. Mm -hmm. And then I spend it all right. And I hang on for dear life. So if it's, if it's a workout that, you know, for instance, like Fran was a great workout for me because it, you could get it done in, in two and a half minutes. Right. I would burn it all really quick. Um, I wasn't great at pacing mm. and I wasn't great at recovering from workout to workout because I was so anaerobically driven and um, it was all just an energy dump for me. So things like regionals where you have seven or eight workouts in a, in a three day period, it was very difficult. So, you know, in hindsight, I would probably have spent a year or two developing my aerobic system a little bit better before I actually went and did something like that. But, um, you know, it's just, you live and learn. Yeah, that's true. Like I, I, um, we've talked about James Fitzgerald a lot over the years. And I think like, I remember him talking about, I think this is where he got his whole concept of how, um, high level fitness and sickness are very like closely related in terms of what you look like underneath the hood, like you were saying, um, because I think he, he has personal experience. I think from, he won the first CrossFit games and then he tried to compete again a few years later and he couldn't finish. I don't believe because he had worked himself into a place where like, I think he was having some kidney issues and some just general, general bodily functions were shutting down. And it took him, I think he said maybe a year to recover from that, from, from whatever was going on with him. It's, and it's not like he was, he had a disease, nothing was physically diagnosable uh, for what he was going through, but his body was certainly shutting down from having pushed himself just way too far. Um, and I think that it's, it's interesting to bring those points up because a lot of people will um, see CrossFit Games competitors or see people who are at their leanest and just assume that that's the healthiest way to, like they look very healthy, right? Because they're low in body fat and they're performing well. And um, maybe you'll start to feel bad about themselves because, you know, I, I know I've done that. Like I, I see guys on CrossFit Games, Rich Froning. I remember when I was um, seeing the CrossFit Games for the first time and I saw Rich Froning, I thought like, that's who I want to look like. 
that guy's like the picture of health, right? He's jacked and he's doing these crazy workouts. But then you get to find out that like, that's not sustainable, right? You can't do it. Even like NBA players are in the prime of the season. They're at their looking their best, but they, I, I bet in the summer or in the off season, they have to let themselves kind of detrain, right? They have to let themselves get out of shape. And that's, it's, it's necessary for them to do that in order to then perform again the next season. Cause if they don't, they're just, it's going to be a short, a short career for them. I'm assuming. Yeah. And you know, to touch on the, the fitness side of things, again, we just don't know what the long-term ramifications of high level fitness are competitive standpoint. Like we don't know what the lifespan of these guys are going to be. We don't, and I'm not saying it's going to be, good or bad, but we just don't know enough about how it affects you long-term. But yeah, I, I know a ton of stories from close friends of mine who've competed at the games level as individual athletes who their bodies are, you know, they haven't done CrossFit in three or four years and their bodies are still recovering to this day. Dang. Some of them struggle with autoimmune disorders that they believe were a hundred percent related to how hard they were training and the, the unbelievable stress they were putting their bodies through. Yeah, um, you probably know one or two of them who, who I'm familiar with, who I'm friends yeah. with. To this day, it's their health is still suffering because of the hole that they dug for themselves. It's crazy because you get into it with, I mean, we all get into fitness and working out with the right intentions. Like we're just trying to be healthy or maybe make, maybe some aesthetic goals, like just look better, feel better, things like that. And you kind of get, I guess, quote unquote addicted. Some people get quote unquote addicted to fitness and just striving for better and, and, and all that. And it, you don't even know that it could lead to something like that because exercise is healthy, right? But uh, the dose, the dose is important. The devil's in the details, so to speak. Exactly. And so like, for you personally, obviously you've had that background. When we were at grad school, like you were trying all kinds of different things, doing uh, rowing. And I mean, I, I think you were doing some swimming stuff. I think you were just, you were just using yourself as like a, as a, test subject to figure out like different ways to periodize training and programming and things like that. And so with all that in mind, like you've, I know you have, a, you've had a lot of, of uh, hobbies athletically and things like that. What, what now? Cause I don't even know. I don't think I've asked you this question before, but what, what is your training like now? What have you found that works best for you to keep you feeling healthy and feeling confident about the way you perform, I guess. Well, right now, um, things definitely changed a little bit when I became a father and working in the NBA and having, having a child is, you know, it is a challenge. And especially when you, then you throw in like, okay, when do I fit my workouts in? But you definitely, you can still do it. I think rather than pushing for like a 600 pound deadlift or, uh, a sub six minute, 50 second row 2k row like these things that i tried to do in the past like that's probably not happening happening right now and right now it's more about maintaining my health and wellness and you know dialing my diet you know still you know eating good foods good quality uh sourced food but then you know we have a home gym here so i tend to you know keep my workouts between 30 and 40 minutes each day you know it's funny i've I still 
I'm not going out and doing CrossFit every day. I'm probably doing closer to what CrossFit was when I started, you know, eight or nine years ago, where it was more just constantly varied activity on a day to day, but you're not really putting yourself in a hole per se. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. one day I might go out for a run for 30 minutes. The next day I'll jump on the rower, do some intervals. And the, the next day I might hang from a, a bar single hand and double hand with a weighted vest on and see how much time I can accumulate. Um, and just doing different things on, on a day to day basis to keep me feeling good. Um, that's kind of where I'm at right now is just about feeling good, staying somewhat fit. And then, uh, you know, I know, I do know when, when my schedule eases up a little bit and, and I'm ready to pursue some other athletic goals, I'll be, I'll be ready to do so. But right now it's more about maintaining. So does that like, I think people fall into two different camps and there's the people who like to do different stuff every day, which it sounds like you kind of fall into just seeing, just coming up with something on the spot maybe, or maybe you plan it out ahead of time. I don't know, but, and then there's the people who get more out of having that structure of cons maybe a consistent workout that they do for a few weeks. Um, what do you feel like? You know, I think there's there's probably naysayers on both sides, right? There's people who will say that if you do something different every day, you're never actually like pushing anything in one direction. And then you say, well, if you do the same workout, you know, several weeks in a row, you're neglecting a lot of different attributes that you could be working on if you did something different every day. What would you say, you know, is your preferred way? Um, and what would you say to the, say the naysayers or the detractors of the way you like to do things? Well, I think right now, you know, it's my, when I wake up in the morning, my number one goal isn't to lift 600 pounds from the ground. It's not, I don't have specific athletic goals per se at the current moment. And I want to feel good and I, I like physical activities. So like my workout doesn't have to be a gym workout. I'll go hiking with my family, you know, we'll hike for an hour and a half, two hours here in Arizona, which there's beautiful hikes out here. The weather's amazing. That's my workout for the day. You know, I'm not, I'm not at a point right now where I'm pushing anything specific, but mm -hmm. I will say that if there were something specific that I was trying to go for, that's where I think periodization and, and, really getting down and structuring your training it's it's the best way to do it and you have to do it if you want to achieve your goals um at least anything worthwhile you're probably going to have to to follow a program um mm. i would say just right now it's just not where i currently am in my life but you know i still track what i do so mm. i'm still competitive with myself so if i am doing uh, some one k's right like say I'm doing three or four, uh, 1k rows on the rower. I'm, I'm tracking that. I'm tracking my rest time. I'm tracking my performance. I'm, uh, you know, I'm tracking when I do squat, I'm tracking what my sets and reps were, what weight I used so that the next time I go about it, I'm able to do something similar or maybe even a little bit better and you know, you can get better that way too. But, um, that's kind of where I fall. Does that, hopefully that answers your oh, question. That, that's perfect. Um, I'll tell you what, I wish I had the home gym right now because with everything going on with the COVID-19, I've, I've just been making up random crap with stuff I have around the house. So I wish I had that home gym that you have, but uh, that's a good, 
that's a good that's a good way to do things i think like it sounds like you're kind of in the you you found a way to hybridize it where right now there's nothing you have that's pressing as far as athletic goals but you're keeping track of things so that you know you make sure you're not you're not regressing hopefully in any one area hopefully you're progressing and if at the very least matching some of your previous performances so that way when it is time when maybe um, you have more time with your job or you have more time um, with your you know family duties and things like that that hey if you want to go hit the 600 pound deadlift a you have all of this data on how you perform just with like a base training right and then uh, and then b you just get yourself into a program that's a little bit more specific and periodized for that goal. Yeah. And I think anyone who has ever been competitive, either, you know, in actual like sport competition or even with themselves, you're, you're going to have numbers that you're not going to want to lose. Right. So like Mm. I'm always, no matter what I'm doing, like right now I need to always be able to deadlift 500 pounds. It's like, Mm. I always have to be able to squat four or five. I got to be able to run a seven minute mile. Mm-hmm. I have to be able to do this and do that. And like, there's certain things that you, you keep tabs on and you don't want to lose that quality. Right. Um, now it's not like I'm sitting down and, and periodizing to be able to do those things, but you know, just by like kind of self-checking and, you know, okay, maybe a month from now I'm going to test my deadlift. And if it is going below 500 pounds, then that's when it's time to start deadlifting a little bit more. But, mm. you know, you just keep your checks and balances. And if you know yourself and your body and, and how you're performing and how you're feeling, and you can keep tabs on yourself pretty well. And I think everyone keeps a mental checklist of kind of where they're gaining and losing. Do you find you're a real competitive person? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So how have you been able to like satisfy that part of your, of your nature without have being able to push yourself right now physically? Are you, are, is it mentally? Do you have some mental things and some educational things that you're com- being competitive with yourself with? Is it your job um, trying to be the best you can be there? What uh, being a dad, being the best kind of dad you could be, what, what I guess satisfies that competitive nature in you right now? a really good question um so i think right now my focus is on being the best dad that i can be as well as at work you know being in a leadership position where i have to make sure that as a performance department we are doing the best job that we can and that we're pushing the envelope and you know doing really good work those things those are new things in my last couple years of life so it's you know, I've shifted a little bit away from the athletic um, area of my personal athleticism and focusing more professionally and, you know, as, as a father. So that's kind of, I think when it comes to being competitive, obviously like you can't compete with saying, Hey, I'm a better dad than you. Like that's (laughs) not, that's not really what, what I focusing on right now. Like, um, but as far as being the best performance department, I do, I do think we do a really good job and we're constantly trying to do better than our, our opponents. Now it's, it, you can't always measure that. Like, I don't know what, um, I don't know what this team's doing and this team's doing, but I do know that we're trying to be the best in the NBA on a day-to-day basis. And whether that, I think, I think with my staff in particular, if you 
if you were to talk to everyone on my staff, I think the one commonality between everybody is they're all curious. Mm-hmm. They're all competitive. And you see that because they're always trying to learn a new skill or get better at a specific area. Mm-hmm. They're not complacent. And I think we all are competitive. And, you know, when Jeff Dolan, one of our strength coaches, when he takes a course and then he comes back in, he starts talking to us about the course, we immediately are ears perk yeah. up and we're like, oh, I want to go take that course too. I want to learn what he's learning. Yeah. And it's, it, works the, it works the other way too. I know I'll do something and then Jeff will come in and be like, oh, I want to do that too. And it's a great environment. We're always pushing each other and we're competitive with, with ourselves, but it's like a positive, like healthy competition. Um, I think the same thing goes for skill sets too. I know the people that I know in the NBA who are applied sports scientists or director of performance uh, people, or, you know, even in an analytics position with specific teams, you know, if you're friends with those type of people and you keep a strong relationship with them, I think if you are competitive, you're always keeping tabs on what other people are doing and you're trying to add things to your skill set. So if someone's learning a specific coding language, that's going to help you do your job as a director of performance, like, like, okay, yeah, I'm going to go learn that. So you're learning that. I'm going to go learn that too. And I'm gonna learn how to apply it to what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I think, you know, my competitive nature is I, I have competition with learning skills as much as I have with becoming really strong or fast or explosive. Yeah. I think that I, uh, that's really cool that you shared that because I think a lot of people are often wondering like, what are, what are some traits that I need to practice or hone in in myself to be better in general at my job or, or what I do in the gym or anything like that. And, um, definitely I, I, I agree. I think that when I look at people like yourself or, or, um, obviously I know Jeff Dolan as well, cause we went to grad school together, all three of us, but I think that constant hunger and drive to, continue learning and curiosity is super important. And I also think that it's, it, it can be tempting to let that go too far at times. If I, if you, if you know what I mean, so it, it can almost be hard. It's like a double-edged sword, right? Cause it could be hard for you to turn that off that, that drive to finish this project, that drive to learn this next lesson that when you turn off the computer or you put down the book, like to stop your brain from continuing to think about that throughout the rest of the night. I know that that happens to me. And um, how had, do you have any tricks or tips for people who might struggle with that with, Hey, I, I, I really need to figure out a way to turn that off now because it's time to be with the family or it's time to do X, Y, and Z that it doesn't have anything to do with that, that I'm, that thing that I'm trying to learn, man, this is, this is such a deep like conversation to have. Like there's so many different ways you can take this, but like it goes kind of back to what we were talking about before with like how anything done to an extreme is not going to be the healthiest thing for you as a person. And it doesn't just, that doesn't just relate to sport that relates to, you know, being addicted to something like, coding per se, or, you know, whatever it is, like if you do something to an extreme, it's probably going to affect you in other areas of your life. So I think having a really good why as to like, 
why did you choose to go into the career that you went into? Like, I know I, I have to ask myself all the time because like you said, I'm a, I get addicted to certain endeavors and you, if you let yourself drift too far off the path, you, you forget like why you got into this for the first, in the first place. So mm -hmm. like always, I think be as often as you can try to remind yourself of why you're doing what you're doing. And you know, something that keeps me grounded and, you know, keeps me from getting as addicted as I used to get to certain, certain endeavors and as uh, full steam ahead as I used to get It's just having a family, having, mm. having a wife and a son who I can come home to spend time with takes my mind off of some of the stresses with work or some of the other endeavors that I'm, that I'm aiming for. Um, I think that adds a balance to your life that it's, it's extremely healthy, at least in my in my life, it's been a, it's been a great influence on me and has provided a little bit of balance for my, for myself. I remember in grad school, it was your last year there, this, this online class we had, uh, science, well, I forgot what it was called, sport and society, something sport like that. Society. <laughs> sport and society. You finished the class. It was an online class. All the lessons were available from the very beginning and you finished the class in like a week or even less than a week, I think. Right. I think it was 72 hours. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. So I even underestimated you <laughs> three days, three days to finish a whole semester's worth of information. I remember you telling me after that, that you felt like your brain needed a deload. Like you had done so much in such a little amount of time that you like broke your brain for a couple of days. It needed to just do nothing for a couple of days. I, I vividly remember that. And I remember because I was in that class with you and Dolan, I think. And um, yeah. I do remember that. And, and the main reason I did that was because it was my last semester and I was working at a CrossFit gym. Uh, in in tampa and the only way i was going to be able to make that work is if i had a, a lighter class load so i basically just for 72 hours i didn't sleep i just went full force on this online class and i'm glad that i did it but i definitely like your body it's like you you, you push your mind to a certain point and i do think it needs to recover um, i'm the same way with podcasts too and i think i've opened up to you about that where if i get it i will get addicted to listening to podcasts and I'll get addicted to reading books and I need deloads. I, you know, maybe it's kind of a, it's a microcosm of what I talked about earlier with kind of wishing I had a better aerobic base in, mm. in CrossFit where I was able to be a little bit more sustainable. I think that's something that as a, as a person I need to get better at. Um, mm. But yeah, no, when I, when I push myself mentally, I definitely need time to recover and, uh, maybe that's why I jump around to so many different hobbies and uh, and endeavors all the time, just because I need to recover because I go so hard on one thing and then it's like, okay, now take a break and go hard on something else and then come back to the thing that I was going hard on before. That's, yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, going yeah. off on a tangent here, but that's, that's just kind of no. how I am as a person. No, I like it. I think uh, that's interesting that you see that in yourself, like even in your, in, in, even intellectually or in your learning that you have this tendency to burn really hot, really fast. And that like you maybe need, you, you've had to work on figuring out how to not come out of the gate so fast and like spread out that learning and spread out that enthusiasm as opposed to just like overwhelming yourself too uh, fast with everything that you're doing. 
to quote James Fitzgerald again, reward the pacer. <laughs> reward the pacer. Yeah. Um, so uh, I want to get into a little bit more of like your, your, your books and like what you go to for intellectual inspiration, I guess, but I want to pull it back really quick to um, this whole athlete thing. And a lot of times um, coaches these days, I've done it myself. They'll, they'll refer to their like gen pop people as athletes. And um, I've, I've, I've seen some people kind of be upset about that because maybe, you know, it's using that term kind of liberally. Um, but I'd like your opinion on having worked with athletes, having worked with general population people, where do you fall on that? Do you feel that it's fair to, to, I'll just use myself as an example. Is it fair for me to refer to myself as an athlete when what I do physically is really more of a hobby and like a lifestyle thing as opposed to what uh, an NBA athlete or an NFL athlete has to go through where that's their job and literally their whole day is dedicated to their athleticism in some form or fashion? Really good question. Um, I think I think if you are in an athletic domain with whatever you're doing, if it's an athletic feat that you're attempting and you're competing with yourself or others, I, I think you can consider yourself an athlete. Now, professional athlete versus amateur versus like weekend warrior, like they only differ by degree. Hmm. You know what I mean? So it's, I guess it's, it is subjective, right? It's subjective what you how you discern athlete versus non-athlete. But I would say if, if you're in an athletic domain and you're competing with yourself or someone else, I, I don't see what the problem is with calling you an athlete. Anyone who gets mad at you for calling yourself an athlete, like, I, I don't know. There's probably something wrong with them or they've got something more deeper that they're <laughs> figuring out. Yeah, I agree with you. I've always found it interesting that people get so upset about it. Um, yeah. Because, like, what what's – I mean – it's just sounds, it just seems like you're, you're trying to find something to get angry about. <laughs> you're trying you're to get you're some. arguing semantics. Right. Right. Well, so that makes me feel better because, um, I've always, I think, I think all of us aspire as little kids to be athletes in some way or another. Most of us do, at least we see our idols on TV and stuff. And so I think it makes me feel better that I can call myself an athlete and not feel like I'm an imposter. No, you're an athlete. I've always, I mean, even like, uh, I'll say like comparing myself to some of the stuff you've been able to do in your athletic career, even with that, I'm like, well, yeah, I'm not, I don't compare to Danny. I call you Danny, obviously, but your official name is Daniel. Well, I have, my official name is Daniel. Everyone at work calls me Bove. Okay. But then anyone who's like really close with me outside of, you know, work or school has always caused, called me Danny. So yeah. I'd like to have Krista, Krista, my wife will come into work sometime, or she's at a game every now and then. And she'll call me Danny to people who I work with. And yeah. they kind of have to double take like who, who the hell is Danny? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I did that too. Uh, when I, I went to a game and um, you know, if you're, if you run into people who are part of the team, they're like, Oh, who do you, who do you know? Like who's and I'm like, Oh, I, I know Danny. And they look at me like both. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. 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 Both. <laughs> yeah. It's funny how that yeah. happens. Um, yeah. 
So I know one thing that you've always going back to like intellectual stuff and, 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 and books specifically, one, one area that you've sort of inspired me on and pushed me a bit on personally is sort of the, the, the content that you like to read. That's not even fitness related. Um, that can probably be applied pretty well to, to anything, but, um, like you've, you've gotten into, uh, or gotten me into books like, um, anti-fragile. Um, you've gotten me into listening to guys like Naval Ravikant. So like Nassim Nicholas Taleb wrote anti-fragile and he has this whole like black, black swan theory and all that kind of stuff It's very interesting stuff. Um, and you, you're really like, when I hear you talk about things, I think you really bring that methodology into the way even you operate as a coach and operate as a person. But um, how have you incorporated those philosophies? First off, could you kind of expand a little bit on on what those teachings are and, and maybe generally what what they mean to you and then how you have applied those to your job and your life and so on? Well, I think first thing, you know, the reason that I've sought these type of books out is I remember when I first got into the MBA, um, you know, when you, when you come out of college and you come out of grad school, like you're so gung ho on reading like peer reviewed literature and, you know, books on training and these things that apply directly to being a physical preparation professional. You need that base. Like, don't get me wrong. That's something you need to have at the base of your pyramid before you start growing in, in you, who you are going to be as a professional. But I remember Art Horn, when I was with the Atlanta Hawks, told me, you know, the, the answers to the questions that you're trying to figure out in your field are probably not going to be found in your field. You're mm. probably going to have to go out, find inspiration from other areas that have already solved these problems, bring in that as inspiration to, to solve it within your, um, your domain. So that kind of set me off on, you know, seeking out other, other types of books and stuff to, to read. But yeah, I mean, Nassim Taleb, uh, his, his book, Anti-Fragile, was, was, a big, uh, was a big one for me when I was getting started in the NBA. And, you know, just the NBA is a chaotic environment. It's very uncertain on the day-to-day. And I think Anti-Fragile is a great book for, for making deci- how to make decisions in an uncertain environment or when there is chaos. Like, what, what are some things you can hang your hat on? Um, and then, you know, to go further with like deciding what literature to read, you know, there's, there's something that Nassim Taleb talks about called the Lindy effect. And it's really, it's a way of describing the robustness of an item or book or whatever it is. It's proportional to its lifespan that's Mm. already happened. So it's like if a book has been popular and relevant for 50 years, according to Nassim Taleb's probability, it's probably going to be relevant for another 50 years. Mm. Okay. But then if it's a 50 year relevant book and then it's relevant for 10 years more and it's 60, then it's going to be probably it's going to have the lifespan of 120. Mm. So, you know, applying these principles to the, the, not only, you know, the literature that I read, but it's like the food you eat and the things that you consume. It's like, are these new things that are kind of a flash in the pan that you're adding to your life? Or are these things that have withstood the test of time essentially? So I think, Mm. Taleb has really opened up my mind to like what I consume on a daily basis, if that makes sense. Um, Mm -hmm. I think another thing that he talks a lot about that I think resonates with, with me and anyone who's in this field or 
pretty much any field, but the concept of skin in the game and, you know, only really trusting decisions and from decision makers who are sharing risk. Right. So, you know, in my field, I want to take advice from practitioners who have had success or failures in an applied setting. Right. Mm -hmm. So it, and this isn't a shot at people in academia because you need research and you need academia, but you know, if you haven't stepped foot out of academia and you expect me to take your advice you know, hundred percent of your advice and use it on a, on a daily basis. Like I'm probably not going to do that. I'm probably going to, I'm going to listen to you when it comes to things like hard science and statistics. And, but as far as how I apply research and, you know, sports science, how I apply it in the day to day, I want to talk to someone who's done it and who's had success with it in that environment, you know? So I think listening to people who have skin in the game is an important thing. And, so and I think another thing that Seem Taleb has touched on is, is people without skin in the game, they tend to make things a little bit more complex than they need to be because they're motivated for perception and, mm-hmm. and as opposed to being motivated for results. So, you know, full disclosure, like I think when you're in sports science, you can easily fall into that trap because you're dealing with data, you're dealing with models, you're you're putting out graphics, you're doing these things that look really fancy and intellectual to people. I think you need to test yourself and and make sure you push yourself as a practitioner to not fall into the trap of wanting things to look fancy and be perceived a certain way. If you're not getting results, like I think sometimes we put the cart in front of the horse and you're motivated by perception. I'm guilty of it. There's been times in my four years in the NBA where people will compliment me on, People will compliment something I'm doing and it'll feel great in the moment. But then later you're like, you know what, did that actually add anything to us winning games or making these guys better athletes? I think because if it did, if it didn't, I don't really want to, I don't want people complimenting me on work that didn't lead to a direct transfer of training or improvement in performance. If that makes sense. Um, That makes a lot of sense. So I think, you know, that, you know, I just went off on a, on a long tangent on the seam to let, but I think there's a ton of stuff that you can, you can learn from some of his books and you know, anti-fragile and skin in the game are, are two of the best ones that I've read. As okay. far as you touched on Naval Ravikant, you know, I, I found out who Naval was. He had a tweet storm a year or two ago where he just went off on a tangent regarding, um, he called it how to get rich tweet storm. And it really wasn't about how to get rich in terms of money. It was more so about how you, um, how you enrich your life. Mm-hmm. And he talks about, you know, the people who study business or they want to read about business. There's no such thing as like a business skill. Like the only way that you're going to be able to learn business is by starting a business. As you probably know, you learn more about starting your own business and going out and making mistakes and having successes than you did reading about it in a book. Sure. Right. So it's like, I apply that while I'm not really a businessman, like I apply that to what I do. It's like, Mm. you only really learn by doing, um, at least anything worthwhile is needs to be, you need to actually do rather than just read about doing. Um, so that's, those are some things I've taken from those two people that you, that you mentioned. I've, um, I think one uh, area that recently that I have seen that what you're saying about, um, actually doing being the best way and in a completely unrelated field would be um, 
Uh, I've been trying to hone my Spanish skills uh, mm-hmm. because I have a plan to go to live in Mexico City for a few months. And um, there's all the reading you can do in Spanish. There's all of the apps you can download that can help to teach you Spanish. But until you actually start conversing with people in Spanish, you're very limited. It's that conversation and it's that making mistakes in conversation, being corrected in conversation and honing your skills that way where you really become proficient at Spanish or any language for that matter. And so the same thing, I think that, that, that almost to me illustrates the difference between somebody who's just a, a researcher, somebody who knows the theory and all that kind of stuff really well versus the person who um, is in the trenches actually doing the work, right? They, they can then, hopefully if they have the scientific aptitude to read the research that's being put out, can take the research and say, you know what, this is great in theory, but in practice, this isn't going to work really well. And, and, and also being able to identify, actually, the, this is great in theory and it works really well in practice. Um, and you and need I think both sides. Quote, you need both, right? So it's, right. To quote, uh, to quote our buddy Jeff, Jeff Dolan, I think he says all the time, it'd, it'd be way better if more researchers were coaches and more coaches got into research, right? I agree with that. That's, that's actually – that's. It's a good way to think about it. Um, going back to the book, so Anti-Fragile, Skin in the Game, those are two really good books that you would recommend. If you had to pick a third book, what would be the third book that you would recommend people read, um, whether it be in the strength and conditioning field or not? Oof. Um, well, I guess since we're this is kind of like a, a training slash fitness podcast, I – I'll throw out like my favorite uh, training related book that I've probably read. And that's super training uh, by okay. Shansky. I remember when I was in, I was a sophomore junior in college and I was just transitioning to the kinesiology program because I was, I was coming from being a fine art major jumping to kinesiology. And I was starting to finally like figure out that you can make a career of being a coach and I remember the the Penn State Public Library. They had uh, they had super training as a book there, and people at my CrossFit gym were telling me like, "Oh, you got to read this book." These were people who had been who'd been in the industry for ten years already, and they were telling me, "Oh, you got to read super training." So, you know, I kept trying to get it from the Penn State Library, and it was always on it was always on hold. Like there was other people reading it. I had to wait. I remember I had to wait like three or four months before I was actually able to get the book. And read it and as soon as I got it I, I opened it and I was like I was blown away at how complex and um, kind of a difficult know, read yeah it was a difficult read and I was surprised I was like this isn't what I thought I didn't think strength and conditioning was that in-depth right <laughs> so it really opened my eyes to the world of physical preparation and periodization and overload and all these things that I think laid the foundation for me as a coach. And I'm really glad that that was one of the first books I ever read on training because it just set a really good foundation for me and really good theory on, on how to, to look at the training process. But um, it's also one of those books that has withstood the test of time been around for a few decades now. And it's, it's one that I highly recommend for anyone starting out in, in space. 
As as somebody going back to what you said earlier about um, you know things that stand the test of time, and you just mentioned it again, um, how how do you evaluate new things that come onto the market, or new things, new ideas, new concepts that come into the sports science realm? How do you um, how do you evaluate those? Because obviously you want to have a mix of tried and true methods and also bringing in some new novel things that might work really well or improve upon what you're already doing. How do you evaluate those things and filter those things for yourself in practice? That's a really good question. And it's actually something that I struggle with on a daily basis. Like I, I don't always have the answer to like what's worthwhile and what's not. Um, I do think it's a constant growth and a constant you know, you're always trying to make better decisions. Like, you know, the decisions I make when I'm 31, I'm hoping those are better decisions than the decisions I made when I was 30. Right. So it's, it's like, I, I hear what you're saying. It's like, well, then how do you ever test new things? If the only things you ever do are older things. And I think for me, what I try to do is connect dots with things that have worked really well throughout the years that, resemble things that are newer or um or if people i know who are i'm really close with who have tried certain things that are newer that i respect their opinion i will try something um but then also just being a guinea pig and testing things out because something you know you just have an intuition that it's probably and, and here's the thing if you have skin in the game you tend to have a pretty good bullshit detector at least as it applies to your domain right mm. so i do think the more experience you gain and i'm not saying i'm those experienced dude i'm only i'm 30 years old so there's people who've been in this a lot longer than me who are way better decision makers than i am but i do think with experience your bullshit detector gets a little bit better and you're able to see what applies and what connects and what is is really relevant to to what you're trying to do okay and so it's almost like um, you keep the you keep your foundations grounded in things that are tried and true and that have um, worked for a long time and probably are going to continue working. But perhaps you'll start adding some new things. You'll start trying out some new things, comparing that to your gold standard, maybe sort of the same way we do they do in research, comparing new, new things to the gold standard. And if you find that it's helpful, you keep it. And if not, then itself isn't necessarily something that's been around for a long time. And so um, maybe with, with the limited, maybe the limited data or the limited knowledge that's been accumulated so far. Um, like what are those maybe hallmark things that you like to look at personally that you have relied upon the most and, and maybe you hang your hat on the most in your job or in your field? Yeah. I mean, I think anyone starting out uh, when you're building a model, a performance model, whether it's for other athletes or for yourself, I think, you know, you have to establish what your big rocks are. And then, like I was alluding to earlier in the talk, is you know try to be make things simple first, and you can you can build from from simplicity, right? So, I think when it comes to my big rocks, you know, I think they are probably training load, um, training response, which you know training response is going to be you know a physiological or psychological effect that training elicits, right? So also nutrition, that's another big rock of mine. Sleep, 
and uh, really just monitoring your KPIs and your performance. Those are the, those are my top five. So when I go back to training load, I think my big rocks within that. So the subsets underneath would be you know total time, right? So like GPS, you go into sports and every team has a catapult or a connexon or a, whatever it is. And, you know we we use indoor GPS or LPS as they call it, but like. I could do it without it. I'm fine with a stopwatch recording how long people are on the court or how long people are in the weight room and then getting an RPE from them, uh, a one to 10 score on how they perceive the exertion that took place. So for me, training load, that gets 99.9% .9 of the benefit that I need hmm. in terms of monitoring. Um, so not very complicated then if you just, it, just keep things more simple, you might get more opinion, out of it. There, there's so much you can do with just knowing the duration and the RPE of a session. There's just, okay. if you do that extremely well, you're going to, you're going to be able to do some really cool things from monitor, monitoring standpoint, in my opinion. And I've had success with that. And I recommend most people start with that before they start to take it off into the, um, the wearable stuff. But, you know, as far as training response goes, uh, you know, how you respond subjectively, like you can do a wellness questionnaire. There's a million out there. Um, resting heart rate in the morning, waking up and seeing what that's like. If you want to get a little more advanced, you can get into the HRV stuff. But again, like I think just an, a subjective marker of, of how you're feeling following a day of, of training. And then, you know, when it comes to training response and how you are, um, how you are responding to training, I think knowing where you are in the grand scheme of the cycle or in the annual plan, because there's going to be times during the, during your cycle where you're supposed to be overreached and your subjective markers aren't going to be great. Your HRV is not going to be great. Your resting heart rate is not going to be great. What you don't want to happen is have those things trending negatively during a time when they're supposed to be trending positively. Right. Right. So just finding out, knowing you're matching the response to what cycle you're in, I think is important. I mean, from a nutrition standpoint, you know, I think that the bottom of the pyramid, the foundation for me is going to be a caloric intake. Um, just making sure you're checking off that. I mean, it, that's just thermodynamics, calories in versus calories out. You have to have the energy to be able to perform. If you take that a step further, macronutrient breakdown percentages there, that is probably the next biggest thing. Um, you know, do micronutrients matter? hundred percent. Yes. Does like your gut biome matter? hundred percent. Does timing matter? hundred percent. But you have to, I think, build the foundation from calories first and then, and then move from there. Um, it all matters though. Yeah. Sleep, we already, we already talked about it from a sleep standpoint. Uh, you know, you can use whoop, you can use aura. These are all great things. I've used them, but I still think you get 99.9% .9 of the benefit from just keeping a journal, tracking when you went to bed, when you woke up, and what the quality of that sleep was. Mm. Similar to time on feet with a stopwatch, just having a record of, of how, you, how long you've slept and, and how well you slept, I think yeah. is important. Um, and then just, and I talked about this briefly when I was talking about what I do for training, just making sure you're tracking your KPIs. You have to have goals and you have to be able to track your progress. So just yeah. making sure you're taking good quality data and you're being consistent and you know where you are in the training process. Are you having an effect on what you're trying to elicit? 
That's awesome. And so what is something that you are working on right now, um, whether it be personally or whether it be financially or financially, whether it be professionally, uh, that you can share with us? And uh, are you excited, what are you excited about right now as far as learning or in physical pursuit? I think right now, um, you know, obviously I'm, I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be the best dad that I can be. I'm mm-hmm. trying to be a good uh, director of performance at work. Um, you know, I'm working on, I am trying to learn, get a little bit better with some of the, the coding languages out there, working on Python and SQL. Those are some things on a personal level that I'm trying to get better at so that I can apply them to my job. Um, so I'm, I'm constantly nagging our analytics department to come down and, and show me how to, how to do certain things. So that's, that's something that I'm trying to get better at. Um, I got a few side projects that I'm working on that, you know, maybe when the time is right, I'll, I'll go out, go ahead and, and release it, but I don't really have anything uh, definitive on that, on that. Cool. Um, then, you know, I think that's pretty much it. Just adding skills that are going to make me better at my job and then uh, trying to be the best dad that I can be. Awesome. And uh, if somebody wants to get in contact with you or shoot you a question, is there any way they can do that? Yeah. I mean, I'm not huge on social media in terms of posting a ton, but I'm on there. I'm on Twitter a lot. I retweet a lot of things and I like a lot of things, but I don't really tweet myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's at Daniel Bove. You want to follow me on Twitter. Instagram is also at Daniel Bove. So if you want to see crazy videos,